out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Mick Rossi, one-time member of The Slaughter and the Dogs, has now released two solo albums. Um, the first one titled All the Saints and All the Souls, that was in 2020, and has a new album out in the end of 2023 titled Gun Street, and it does feature a version of Paul McCartney's Jet, which we talk about in great detail. Anyway, this is the interview, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was Band on the Run and Jet. Anyway, Mick, tell us more about that song that you cover on the new album, and do check it out, by the way. Well, well, I, I like the song Jet. Um, that's the one you're talking about. And it's such a bombastic song. There's like three songs within one in that particular song and it comes at the original comes at you so fast. So I was just strumming away one day and I, I, I just thought it would be nice. And I turned it into a ballad, as you know, you know, so. Yes. Uh, very sparse, just kind of piano and uh, Mellotron driven. So. Nice. That's good. But look, what's always kind of interesting, just to get a bit of a background. So this isn't that exciting, though, but I was born 1964, so I'm now in my late 50s, which is a bit freaky. But my early musical awakening was the glam world in the early 70s of Sweet Slay, T-Rex, Gary Glitter. But luckily, David Bowie was my first single and first love with Space Oddity that had the B-side of Changes and Velvet Goldmine. So I thought all B-sides were going to be kind of at that level. So a bit disappointed ever since, but never mind. But what was your your musical kind of awakening that um, had an impact? My awakening was seeing, we lived in a council flat in Withenshaw. I mean, and it was literally a tin bath, toilet outside, one of those things. But uh, I remember lying on the floor watching Top of the Pops on a TV about, about 12 inches, a black and white one. And then Bowie looked into camera and went, I had to phone someone so I picked on you. And like, 20 million other people that we all thought he was pointing at them individually. And that was a moment for me. And then I gravitated to the blonde guy, you know, I didn't know who he was or even what Les Paul was then, but that was the moment that music really spoke to me. I really thought Bowie was an alien. Yes. Um, and uh, there was something about that, that, that touched my soul. And I thought, fuck me, man. Yeah. That's uh, there's something going on there. And then, you know, as a kid, then you you investigate further. But when you're young, you can't comprehend it because you're just seeing this 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 uh, this alien looking guy on TV with the the most interesting song, because most songs were love songs. He's talking about Starman and, you know. So uh, that was my first moment, yeah. Yes, that was quite cosmic. I, I also remember seeing Alice Cooper doing things like Schools Out and being kind of quite quite excited because that was that kind of early 70s period where, you know, the, the kind of glam rock anthems were quite something in the playground and at school. But I do remember probably the first song that I can really remember is Scylla Black doing Step Inside Love. And um, I revisited that a few years ago and was quite amazed how excited 
how exciting that track is. I realised then it was um, written by Paul McCartney and John Lennon, or one of them. It was a Beatles song, but it had that kind of slow, slow, quiet, dramatic moment, didn't it, with Scylla? So there you go. Well, there were songs in and around there that we were certainly, I wouldn't normally gravitate to, but like Band of Gold, Free to Pain, was a classic pop song. You had that driving beat, you know, which is kind of like Stone Love for the Supremes. Yes. But a lot of those kind of floating around in the midst of like, you know, your Roxy music and your, your, your uh, uh, you know, Bowie, Roxy music, Mop the Hoople. So, uh, so Scylla was part of that, you know, so it was just wonderful times for me. Yes. Song, you know, real musicians and proper arrangements and everything done from the soul and not a machine. Yes, absolutely. And it's interesting you mentioned about the little black and white telly because I do remember that kind of experience of sort of switching the telly on, What you know, it warmed up, then you watch this black and white grainy little thing and it was such a kind of exciting experience because there wasn't much on actually so we had to just gravitate to one or two things. I do remember when a colour telly appeared in the sort of, I don't know, 72, 73, being a bit like, oh my God, what's that? That's extraordinary. I didn't realise yeah, yeah. there was so much going on. So then, we, when when did you leave school? What was that period? Was that the sort of mid-70s, um, uh, 70s you left school? 70s. Uh, I left school. Uh, by, by the time I left school, I was obsessed with Bowie and Mick Ronson. So it, it happened really fast for me. So uh, there was a connection, and I just tried to drink up anything. I could connect it with them. So my bedroom wall was just plastered, you know, with, with uh, posters and pictures from the magazine. So, so when I left school, I, I had two jobs. One was a, a hairdresser, but it sounds good, but it wasn't because it's all, it's all I was doing was um, I was cleaning the mirrors and sweeping up the hair and getting people sandwiches. But I, I wanted the job because the lead stylist there had a Ziggy Stardust hair. And so, so that lasted a couple of weeks. And then I, uh, I had a job at a warehouse packing plant in Withenshaw that lasted a couple of weeks. And then I went straight into music, you know, I was straight into it. Yes, absolutely. What was your first gig you went to? First gig I went to, my God. Well, as a, as a kid, we, we, you know, I used to run with a bunch of scallies and we, we were up to no good. Um, and we used to go to the free trade hall and Jimmy the lock with a, a coat hanger, the exit door, um, the fire exit door. So we would go in and see anybody. It was just a thrill of going to a, a, a venue, dark, you know, a darkened room, tons of people, these exotic lights and scenic. So it was Hawkwind. Right. Blimey. Silver Machine. All gone yeah. accumulator. My God, that was a classic, wasn't it? Yeah. And then, then, ironically, when the Pistols reformed and they did Crystal Palace, they closed with Silver Machine. Classic. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it was the first, the first, I think it was the first gig as, as a youngster. Cause, uh, and then it was like, I, I would, Try and see anybody. I said Batman Turner Overdrive. Um, so yeah, I think it was Hawkwind. Fantastic, I God! I, I, 
to, to sort of that was kind of a rite of passage, wasn't it, Hawkwind? You know, whether you could sort of exit the uh, the gig without your brain being completely smashed was quite something, yeah. wasn't it? It was, and it was quite frightening. They were quite out there, weren't they? Was Stacey on stage at that stage? Yes, she was. Yes, yeah, the first time I'd seen a naked because uh, I was a kid. You know, I was probably eleven or twelve. Uh, it's the first time I'd seen a, a woman kind of semi-naked dancing on yes. stage. Uh, yeah, it was a bizarre thing, man. But it, it was just, it was magical for me, the whole thing. I didn't care who was playing. It was just something was happening. Yes. And, and did you ever have a football fantasy at that stage in your life? Not really. I, it lasted a, a little, a little bit, but... It seemed to kind of dissipate very quickly. But like any kid, you know, when you're a youngster in a council flat is, you know, my my mum couldn't afford to buy me a uh, a proper football kit because all the kids had kits, you know, you want, you know. So um, I think in the end, she got me white shorts and a white shirt, a T-shirt and white socks. Um but that was Leeds United, if I remember rightly. If they were all, <laughs> and so I would play in the street with this pretend kit, um, where everyone else had United or City. Um, so no, it didn't really last long. But I am a City fan, and I remember the one time I think my dad took me to a City game, and it was the one and only time that I went. Um, so I didn't get sucked into it like most people do. Yes. So how did you make that leap from being a fan and being obsessed with music to actually being in a band at this stage? Because because my my sort of, I mean, grew up in the East, East Anglian countryside. Not many people had that kind of resource or that imagination to, to be in, you know, in a band. So how did you make that leap? It was just purely school friends. Um, the singer of Slot the Dogs, he was a... A year older or two years older um and he was into funny enough alice cooper we were talking about schools out so he loved alice cooper and a band called the tubes america i didn't know what they were uh and i was into mick ronson and bowie and so we hit it off and then we met the drummer so it was just really school kids coming together and um uh discussing influences and 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 then fashion played an extremely important part of that time too so that's how it started we formed a band at school um and and my mother took me to a junk store in moss side which is on the outskirts of manchester um and she bought me this acoustic guitar and it was six pounds it was all beat up. I've just donated that guitar to the Punk Rock Museum in uh, in Vegas, funny enough. But um, so she brought me brought me this guitar, and because I, I desperately wanted to, you know, be Mick Ronson, and I learned to play on that. So when I met the guys at school, I was already badly playing a guitar, um, and so it was like, well, you can drum, but I'm already playing guitar. And I started writing songs real, real early. I mean, not good songs, but I was having a crack at it. So it came together pretty quickly. Um, and then we had access to a scout hut who would let us rehearse there on the weekends. 
And that's what we did, you know, and we had really bad equipment. It was one of those where it was one amp and everyone was plugged in the same amp. Right. Yeah, and the bass player. So what bands were the band? What who, who were you trying to copy? Were you just trying to sort of play music that from Bowie's back catalogue or Alice Cooper or anything? We weren't trying to... We, we was actually just trying to copy Bowie, yeah. Um, so we we were doing covers. So we, we'd learned Suffragette City. I'd learned to play the Gene Genie, uh, Both Ends Burning, Roxy Music. Um, and so we had like a set list of covers with like a couple of um, originals thrown in. Um, but, you know, I didn't know what I was doing. I was still kind of finding my way. It was... It was when we played with the six Sex Pistols at the Manchester Lesser Free Trade Hall that everything changed then. Yeah. Literally. Because we were, we were invited to play. The Pistols did it twice, and it's a legendary gig. The first one, the Pistols did it with the Buscocks, and I think there was maybe like 20 or 30 people in. And then the second time, our manager, who was my older brother, uh, was approached by Malcolm or he'd spoken to Malcolm, I can't remember. But we had a local following, we, uh, quite a big local following in Withenshaw, and we'd done shows. And so they invited us to, uh, uh, you know, be on that bill. And, you know, I was still dressing like Mick Ronson and we were still doing these covers with a couple of originals. And I remember really clearly I was watching this Sex Pistols soundcheck and... John had a cold and he, he pulled these snotty lyrics out of his pocket. Um, and then Steve started the opening chords of Anarchy in the UK and he had a phaser on, on his guitar. I didn't know what a phaser was. Um, and, uh, and then the band kicked in and Glenn comes thundering in and it just blew my mind. I was like, holy shit, what the fuck is it? It was like a freight train coming at you. Yes. Um, so we did the gig. It, um, there was a big fight that broke out that night. Um, and it was like chaos, but it really gave me a spark. So when I went back to rehearsals, we did less and less covers. And the original songs I'd written, I, I changed the arrangements and kind of just put them straight forward, very kind of ballsy tunes. So that's how it started. Yes. So what was that first experience in the studio like? Was that cranked up really high? Was that your first time that you recorded something? No, we, we did uh, we did uh, four songs in a demo studio. Well, it was meant to be a proper recording studios. But, you know, again, we, 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 were, we were kids and, and we, we went round and stole the iron grids in and around Withenshaw those thick iron grids where the drainage would go down. Yes. And I stole about 10 of them and we put, took them to a scrap metal yard and they gave us, I think it was like a hundred quid. And that was the studio time. So we went in and uh, we had no idea what to do. Uh, and we went in this awful studio and this guy just took our money, recorded us really badly and then when it was time, he says, right, that's it, time's up. So that was our first experience. The cranked up one you're talking about is we were approached by a guy called Tosh Ryan, um, who was part of the fly postering thing in Manchester, which was very big at the time. Um, and he, 
he was starting a label called Rabid Records, and we gained a little more uh, more profile, I guess, certainly from playing with the Pistols. And then they said, "There's this producer called Martin Hannap, and he should produce you." Uh, and so we went in the studio, and Martin Hannap, I remember, he reminded he reminded me of Doctor Who because he had a big scarf on and curly hair and a kind of pointed nose. Um, but the first experience was fantastic because he just told us all what to do because right. we had no idea. He says, you go there, you plug in there and you sing. And we was under his guidance totally. So it was the first time we'd, and we were very lucky to get somebody like that. It was a mad genius um, for our first single. It was incredible. Yes. And did you feel like you were part of some zeitgeist at this stage? No, we, we were still. No, I didn't. I, I, I felt. We were. We were. It happened really, really fast. So there was a lot of things happening really fast. But I still felt we were kind of like outsiders because we. We were from a council estate and working class where the Buzzcocks was from art, you know, the art colleges and they, they were, their vocabulary, vocabulary was a lot better than ours. And, and so I, I still felt very much like we were getting away with it. We were going right. to get found quickly. Yes, the imposter syndrome is quite strong with the working class, isn't it, really? Very much so. Yes. And then, but with a lot of artists I've interviewed, they kind of look back with amazement that you were talking about things happen fast and, and you don't quite appreciate it until later. And you think, God, you can't do that again quite so quickly and so smoothly. You know, people just wanting to sign the band and then, you know, people giving you offers and touring and and yeah. everything does. Sometimes the planets do line up, don't they? And they just all shift into the top gear before you really have time to um, consolidate. So was that a similar experience with you for the first two years? Yeah, it, it, it was because there's, there's a great thing about naivety because you, you don't know any better and you've got nothing to judge it against. So we were, we were firing on, on pure instinct. And so I think as, as in anything, painter, actor, musician, whatever it may be in the arts, poetry, your, your instinct is your biggest weapon. I find, you know, because it's usually your gut instinct that kind of, you know, drives you this way or takes you that way. And so we were we were just going firing on instinct. We didn't know any better. Um, and so it, it was just a great ride, a, a rapid speed. And we didn't we didn't step off to a try and digest it and, 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 and see the value as what what was happening. And uh, and how lucky we were. We were just like just snotty kids going at 100 mile an hour. Yes. Um, it did. It did click in for me because I became very good friends with Mick Ronson, who was my mentor. Mick played on Do It Dog Style. Um, and I remember just rewinding a little. This is just as we were starting with Slaughter the Dogs pre-Sex Pistols gig is... I was too young to go and see Bowie, so I never got to see him play live. Certainly the, the Ziggy stuff. But then when Mick came out, 
and did the Slaughter on 10th Avenue um, tour. I went to Manchester, um, bunked off school, bought a ticket, went to the show. I think it was like 75 pence or something. It's unfucking believable. So Ronald comes on stage at Manchester Free Trade Hall. And we all rush to the front of the stage. And after about three songs, he goes like this. And I'm like, he's, he's doing that to me. And my friends were like, no, no, it was me. It wasn't you, it was me. So blew my mind. And then we waited outside to try and get a glimpse or an autograph. And he was ushered onto this coach and off he goes. So we had tickets for the next show, which was Sheffield. And this time we'd, we, we got the coach, I think it was, was, was like 25 pence or something, or 50p. But we couldn't afford a hotel. I'd never been in a hotel. So we had sleeping bags and we were going to sleep on the coach floor after the gig on the station because the next coach was like 8 a.m. in the morning, you know. So we go to the gig, we run to the front, Rono goes like this. And we're like, no, it was me and me. And we wait outside. He's ushered onto this coach. But this time I keep running. And me and a buddy, we just keep running. So all the fans drop off and it's just me and a buddy running. One block, two block. And there was not a lot of traffic, thank goodness. And the coach just stopped after about four blocks. And the doors went, shh. And Mick stuck his head out and went, come on if you're coming. So we get on the coach and... I'm just in awe, you know, I'm just staring at him like, you know, I think I was yes. 13 or something. And then I see the spiders from Mars. I see Mike Garson and Trevor Boulder. Uh, he didn't have Woody with him. He had Aisley Dunbar. And so Mick said, he, I, I saw you in Manchester. And I was like, fuck it. I'm so, so made up. And so we go to the hotel and he said, it's the last show of the tour and we're having a party. Would you like to come? And I'm like, oh, yeah, man. And so um, we get into the party and it's, it's all the main man who managed Lou Reed and all that. They're all there. There's Tony DeFries and that. And uh, Mick says to me, he says, what's the um, sleeping bag? And I says, you know, we're just going to sleep on the floor. Um, the coach leaves at 8 a.m. So he disappears and he comes back with a hotel room key. And he says, you, you know, you can stay in the hotel. I got your room. I'd never been in a hotel. And here's how naive I was. I made the bed in the morning because I thought it would make a good impression. I didn't know <laughs> there was aides that come in and do that. So we became friends then, uh, Mick and myself. And uh, he gave me his phone number and I used to call him up uh, when my parents were asleep. Because that's when phone calls to London from Manchester were, were quite expensive. Um and I called him up when I, when we finally got a record deal, and I says, uh, all excited, you know, I just got a record deal, Mick, and I bought a Gibson, and I bought a Marshall amp, and and I says, and you should play on the album, not knowing what bigger ask that was because I was just a very naive kid, and he says, okay, and he came down to the studio, and again, I didn't know what I was doing, I didn't really understand tone. And Mick went to my amp and adjusted some of the settings. And then I, I was hearing the Ziggy Stardust sound. It's unfucking believable. God, that's 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 amazing, isn't it? That is just so good. And yeah. I have I, hold on, David. I think I can pull this up and you may be able to see it. So many moons ago, this 
someone sent a picture of that very night where Mick got me the hotel key. Um, was that sim was that seventy three then? Was that around? Yeah, when when Mick went out with Slaughter on Tenth Avenue. So hold on one sec. Sorry to be looking. That's down. fine. My God, that's that's an it's an amazing story. I'm looking forward. Susie Bronson. Oh, let's have go. You'll just have to put it. Oh my God, is that Angie? No, that's you. <laughs> that's and that is Mick. That is Mick. That is Mick. My God. That is... that, that, that's the story I'm talking about. And that's me like looking like a little monkey. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know. God, that is um that is the most unbelievable story ever. That is incredible. Mick Ronson, the famous. He's um later. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's me and Mick in London. Wow, was that the late 80s? It was the late 80s. Anyway, so but so talking about, you know, it going fast. It, there was when Mick came down, this was this massive superstar, my hero, and that it, it gave me pause, you know. And I thought, fucking hell, man, that's Mick Ronson. And so uh, that was a moment of, that I, I I could digest because I was such a fan and still am a fan of everything he did. Um, yeah, so it was it was just uh, it was exciting times, man. And I tell you what 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 was wonderful. It was a whole nation moving as one for change. And so. It, it, you would bump in, we would bump into like Generation X at this service station or the clash at that service station, you know, up and down the month. And we were all moving as one, all playing different venues and that. But it was a great time, man. And it just shows you the power of music. The power of music, you know, it has the capacity to change. It has the capacity to take you back to a time and place. And it can, if you get it right, it can provoke an emotion in you, man. Yeah, well, a huge emotion. It was quite funny you mentioned about going up and down the, you know, the motorways and service station. Because I did an interview last week with somebody who mentioned a certain service station that you'd all be at at two o'clock in the morning, and they would be all the bands kind yeah. of conversing in one place. And you go, oh yeah, there's that bunch in there, and there's another bunch, and there's a, you know, and you became quite good friends. I don't know, I can't remember what the service station was, but they said you would guarantee to see some band there with their you and it, know. yeah there was one was not so the other one was chorley because it was just just before you hit london so yeah it was great times man you know it really was and there was none of that rivalry it was just like as i said it was a nation moving as one and that force was it, it was like a sherman tank coming at you it was wonderful well, yes. Well, absolutely. God, that's so incredible, the, the Rono story. I always remember, if you ever get a chance, there's a classic album series, which they seem to play on Sky Arts at the moment. And there's one with Lou Reed doing Transformer. And he talks about Rono and the fact oh. he had he had no idea what he was talking about half the time because he couldn't understand his accent and and the fact. And then and Rono's talking about Lou because he'd say, you know, he'd sort of get him to, you know, he'd adjust Lou's guitar so it was in tune and then get this stare from Lou Reed to say, you know, what are you doing? But yeah, because yeah, yeah. it was kind of Rono who really produced that album more than David. Oh, of course. I knew Lou quite well. 
And I had dinner with Lou about six months before he passed in, I was in New York. And we spoke a, a great deal because he knew he knew I was a, a mad Rono fan. And Lou used to say to me, it was all Mick. David would come to the studio, but uh, he wasn't there as much as Mick. It was all Rono. And then I'd ask Mick about it and he'd go, oh, you know, in a whole accent, he'd go, you know, Lou, Lou would, would like come in and say like, can you make it sound a more gray? <laughs> That's the one. Yes, there you go. Funny, his last album he produced for someone was Morrissey, wasn't it? Your Arsenal, which had a great yeah. sound. Yeah, well, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the, every album I've done, If you, even if you look at the acoustic album I did, All the Saints and All the Souls, there's a thank you to Mick. The same on Gun Street is in the credits. Uh, he's forever an inspiration for me. Most importantly... Who he was as a human being, not not as a, a, a legendary player, the genius string arranger, all of that. But it's when I look back now, and now I'm older, I can see he was so generous of time and spirit. To, to you know, I'm this kid, and he was so generous, and and it, it was a great example of how to conduct yourself. And, and Mick did a, a lot of things like that for me. It was, it was wonderful. And he stays with me in my heart, man. Yes, um, there you go. I think Susie's got a book coming out next year, hasn't she? She has, me and, me and Mr. Jones. Yeah, the title is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, that'll be very interesting. So one... Oh, well, listen, are you interviewing Susie? I would love to one day. Yes, that will be an ambition of mine. I've done quite a oh. lot of Bowie-related interviews, so... Um, Susie okay. would be something, you know. So, um, yeah. have you? Do you listen to those main man podcasts? With... I have a few. They're fascinating. They are so yeah, good. Yeah. The one, the one about uh, with Wendy, who is just Wendy hanging out with Freddie Beretti. I mean, she's just kind of quite a loose person who's just, you know, having a good time. But it's kind of interesting those those kind of like interviews with the the other people in the in the the David Bowie camp just when he's just about to make it is just brilliant. They're fascinating interviews. Yeah. I yeah. mean, um, I, it's great that they're, they're out there because it's, it's, it's wonderful to, it's wonderful to listen back on these things. And certainly as I was saying before, you know, it can take you back to a time and place. And I love hearing stories that I've never heard before as a kid. And certainly when, um, when you would watch any any movies, rock and roll movies, the best footage for me was always the footage behind backstage, because you were allowed a window in to, to really how how it all clicks and works. You know, I remember seeing uh, Hammersmith Odeon, uh, Ziggy's last movie. Remember the the one? I know they've just reissued it. Yes. But funny, Mick, I was living in Islington, and Mick came round to my flat. And we watched that together. And it's the first time Mick had seen it. Uh, Ziggy Stardust at the Hammersmith Odeon. Um, but I was always intrigued by the backstage footage. And you see Susie, you know, putting David's makeup on and Mick smoking with a, pre you know, playing a little. And it's it, 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 so I, I loved all that stuff. So these little podcasts 
I like a window into the uh, to the world. Yeah, I love. It. Yes, it's yes, it's been it's been quite good. There was I managed to do an interview with the guy who did the sound for the Ziggy Stardust tour because he was in a '60s band called the Presidents, and then he just got a tap on the shoulder and it was Angie saying, "Could you sort out David's sound?" And he went on that tour and. Um, he was an amazing character. His book's right behind me. I can't remember his name now, but um, it was one that he he sort of he sent me a, a recording of that um, that concert with a with a sort of photocopied ticket as well, which was quite unbelievable. Wow. Excellent. You know. Anyway, so look, oh Jesus. Um, so that was Mr. Bowie and Robson. Yeah. So then, when the album comes out in '78, how how is the kind of musical direction of the band at that stage? Um, well, we, we, we were obviously in the slipstream with, with punk. I, I remember Caroline Coons, uh, she worked for Melly to Maker, And at the time she said, who's who of punk. And she termed the, uh, you, you know, she, she kind of labeled the band's punk rock. Um, and she did a thing for Melody Maker that says, who's who of punk. And there was only about eight bands and we were in there. And so our, again, we was just flying on pure instinct, but I, I like to think of us as a high energy street rock and roll band. That was always the, 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 I would like to say that rather than a punk band, because certainly later on when the second generation punk rock came in and, and listen, there's room for everything, but you don't have to like it. I really don't like that second generation stuff where you know, they're screaming and, and it sounds like you're shitting out a pineapple, you know, singing. Uh, but so, so the, the first batch of those bands, I always thought the, the Pistols were just a great rock and roll band. They were never fast. Their songs weren't 100 mile an hour. Uh, the Clash again. So, yeah, I, uh, we, we were part of that movement, which was classed as a punk rock movement. But it was just dirty rock and roll for me. So when you came, you know, as as we crept into like 79, Thatcher gets in, then we have the Falkland War, the miners' yeah. crisis, we think we're all going to be nuked. What's the early 80s like for you? Because you must be now hitting 20 and having that kind of initial explosion. And then obviously, as most scenes, they last about 18 months, yeah. if you're lucky, two years. And then you think, mm, this isn't going well now. It's kind of people are all looking like Sid Vicious and that's not going to, that's no, not really a move. Not good. I, well, for us, it was, and certainly for me, is the singer had left the band twice and, and just run off with, with uh, I, I think, a, a girl, and then he did it a second time. Um, so there was already kind of turbulence. And then when the album, the first album, didn't sell as well as we thought, and it, and it was a mistake because we should have carried on and just kind of barreled on through. Um, you, you know, it, it was starting to fracture and it fractured very quickly. Um, and I think if memory serves me well, I think I went off to play with Pete Wiley. It was either Pete Wiley or Talk. talk no, no. It was Gary Holton. Right. Gary Holton in a band called the Heavy Metal Kids. So Gary, so just as Slaughter was crumbling in the 80s, I'd moved to London. Dave Vanian had got me my first apartment in Islington and he lived underneath me. I remember him calling up and saying, it's 25 quid a week, Mick, can you handle it? 
And I was like, I don't know, man, but I, I, I want to get out of Manchester. Um, so then I, I, I used to see Gary Holton quite a bit on the scene. And then Gary and I, we started writing together. Um, and again, the 80s was moving fast because I, I you know, I, I was, uh, I was doing cocaine and speed. It, you know, if it was there, I would do it, man. You know, so it was just this I, I, fast, fast, fast. But the 80s was a weird time because it was the start of the floppy fringe and synthesizers. And, and so the Les Paul was quickly becoming a, you know, persona non grata. There was a lot of synth bands. Um, so I would just maneuver in my way through that. So Gary Holton, then Talk Talk, I did some stuff with Wiley. And then I, I formed a band called The Duelists. Um, which was quite a popular band in and around England, especially London. Uh, and so, you know, the, the punk rock thing was like a distant memory very, very quickly. Yes. But then, eight, you know, because you mentioned the, the synth bands, there was the kind of the Blitz kids, sort of new romantic. There'd been a bit of goth as well. But then 83, the Smiths appeared, aren't they, from Manchester, Morrissey, yeah, yeah. Marr, and then for Brilliant. five years, we have the kind of the indie sound of the Smiths, as well as yeah. all the other bands as well. Did that did that kind of intrigue you hearing Johnny Marr? Well, Johnny, I knew Johnny because he came, his first ever gig was a Slaughter the Dogs gig in Withenshaw, pre-Pistols. Um, and I used to see Johnny in and around the scene a little bit. Um, and then when... Slaughter split. I was good friends with Billy Duffy, um, cult Billy, great guitar player. And so Billy and I would then, I said, well, we should do something, you and I, and we'll use the second drummer from Slaughter the Dogs and the bass player from Slaughter the Dogs. I said, but I don't, I don't want to sing, you know. I, I, you know, in my mind, I wanted to be Mick Ronson. You know, I want to still be that guy. And I kind of perfected it being that guy on the left, you know? Yes. Uh, and then Billy says, well, I know this singer and he's named Stephen Morrissey. And I says, okay, bring him down. So Stephen Morrissey comes down to rehearsal with a duffel coat on, with the hood up, and he wouldn't take the hood down. And so, but I'm looking for Rod Stewart and the faces. I'm looking for Stephen, you know. Uh, yes. I knew you could find another David Bowie, but, you know. Steve Marriott, Rod Stewart, you know, that type of. And I remember saying to Morrissey, uh, you know, well, the songs kind of go like this. And we wrote a couple of songs together, um, which no one has ever heard. Um, and But he was so introvert and he wouldn't take his fucking hood off. And then he started singing. He was so shy. Um, and again, I, I was too young and I didn't realize the power of this guy's lyrics and what he was writing. Uh, I just couldn't grasp it. So I said to Billy, it's not working out with that guy with the duffel coat. <laughs> you know. Oh, and there you go. It's probably in his book, isn't it? I can't remember now. Yeah, I, I know it's in Johnny's book or, or something. But anyway, uh, that then when the Smiths happened, I just thought it was fantastic. I thought it was brilliant because there was such a stigma about coming from Manchester because everything seemed to be happening in London. 
Um, that was the epicenter. And so when we would go up, even Slaughter the Dogs, they, a lot of people treated us like fucking northern yokels. And they thought we were like Coronation Street. You know, hey, up, love, you know, we've come to play. It was that. And so there was, a, as I said, there was a stigma that came with that. But then when that all changed drastically when Oasis came on the scene. But prior to that, you know, Johnny and Morrissey, you know, they, they were creating something fantastic. Yes. They just, so it was, it was wonderful time, man. And, uh, you know. And how did you then, because when they broke up sort of 87, then there's that kind of, ecstasy world then there's a kind of another wave of 16 18 year olds appearing and then you know there was this sort of seattle grunge scene there was a bit of shoegazing but there was a lot of the dance scene had appeared and mad madchester was there as well suddenly your city becomes very hip and groovy and everyone wants to go to university there so what's it like for you during the late 80s and early 90s well in the late 80s i was i was living in london and i i would only come back to manchester periodically um mainly christmas time so it it was i really don't know what i felt so it's funny enough i'm just reading a book now by uh it's called unspun by andrew spinell oh yeah uh, you know the book yeah i've been in touch with him i was going to do an interview with him soon oh, so i'm just reading his book now it's literally on the table there um and uh it was just you know the rave scene ecstasy had hit and then obviously the hacienda tony wilson and see i i knew all them because tony wilson introduced us before the pistols gig we we'd rented out withenshaw forum hall and we'd done it on our own and we had like two or three hundred kids no maybe 200 kids and we had Tony Wilson from the fucking telly introducing us. So this was way, way back. So I knew Wilson. Then I knew all the, the Tosh Ryan when we did Rabid Records, all those guys, and Rob Gretton. Rob Gretton used to run the Slaughter the Dogs fan club, who went on to be a partner in Hacienda. So I knew them all. Um, so I just thought they were like mad bastards get making a lot of money and, uh, you, you know, creating this, this mad rave scene. It wasn't really for me because I, I, I just didn't. I thought it was pretty cool, but it wasn't my bag. How did all. you? What, what about people like Joy Division and then the, uh, New Order? Did that kind of float your boat? It it does now now because again there was a, there was a certain arrogance that we all had when we were young, you know. It's like ah fuck that, you know, because we all used to rehearse at the same rehearsal studio with. Joy Division, and a band called Frantic Elevators. Oh, my God, Frantic Elevators, yes. Mick Hucknall. And there's a guy called, is it Mick Mike Reader as well, who went to Berlin and became part of that techno scene. Right, yeah, yeah. So Joy Division, you know, Peter Hook and all them, we kind of, you know, we, again, we were like the, the, the rough bastards from the council estate. And so people kind of stayed away from us. So we didn't, we didn't fraternize with them at all. Uh, I thought it was dark music. I didn't understand again, really how, how great it was. And it had such longevity and still does to this day. Um, 
I just thought it was kind of like this dark, mysterious, uh, uh, downer music. Yes, it was a bit downer. But no, there's always um, books and articles in the paper about the famous council estate in the flats, isn't it? Whom in Manchester. People love doing documentaries on that. I think there's going to be a new book coming out very soon by by a photographer called, I think it's named Richard Davis. Right. I might be wrong. But anyway, it's it's all Manchester. And then Cherry Red Records brought out a seven CD box set a couple of years ago with Manchester bands. And um, so the music scene was very vibrant at that stage. It really, it really was. And it, it's and if you look back on it, it's always been pumping out great stuff. You know, it, it, and the interesting thing is the pistols broke big time in Manchester. That was the gig that changed the landscape of music, certainly in the UK, and it was a Manchester gig. So, you know, Manchester's always been, it, it's, it's, it's always had its finger on the pulse. So, you know, from the early punk rock and, and then magazine and the Buzzcocks, Us, um, and then right through to, to the Happy Mondays, the, you know, the Smiths. And these are all great bands, man. I mean, right up to Oasis. Yes. And I love, love Oasis, I, I think. Uh, and I love Noel. I think he's one of the greatest British songwriters um, that's, that's come out of, of, of England. And he's still super brilliant and super relevant. Um, and, and, you know, it makes you proud to be a Mancunian. Yes, absolutely. So when we go from the Thatcher years to the major years in the 90s, what's your musical direction at this stage? In the 90s. Had you, had you, what was your drug consumption like? Was it still steady or was it getting worse or had you cleaned up? No, it was still pretty steady. It was, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, in in your mind, you're like, yeah, you know, I'm handling this. But, you know, you walk on stage and you're like this. <laughs> and you think, I remember Ringo come to see us. I had a band called the, uh, it was actually the Duelists. And Ringo come to see us at the Marquee, right? And I was speeding off my head and I went off over to talk to him. And he nicknamed me Gabby because I wouldn't shut up. But I, in my mind, I thought I was being you know super cool but i was being like you know a mad spider on acid all over the place you know <laughs> so uh, yes tricky so did you start it, did you sort of play with martin from Sig Sig sputnik at this stage I, yeah so what i did is around that time i did uh martin degville's first solo album i i, I produced it played on it and I co-wrote I think three or four songs with him uh, and it was called World War Four. so I did that and then I played with Martin for a while uh, trying to think and how was Martin at that stage because obviously he had that elevated moment in the 80s which sometimes leaves people completely weird Martin was I always found him great I mean you know he in the studio he's he's not he's not into the the mechanics of how it works i remember with with the second slaunt the dogs album it was produced by uh dale griffin from mott the hoople yes. and i've met 
I've met Ian, obviously through Mick and blah, blah, blah. But, and so, but I was so curious. So I was in the studio. So I'd be like, to, why did you do that? What does this do? You know, um, what if you press that button? So with Martin, he was, he was always very much an individual. And I, I like that about him, you know, and I like people who dance to their own beat, you know, regardless of what people say, whether you like it or not. I think it, I think it's very brave to be an individual, um, certainly in the music and certainly the way Martin looks. So I, I like that. I thought he was very interested. I thought he was fearless. But in the studio, it was a bit of a nightmare, to be honest, because he didn't understand what was going on. And uh, and there was quite a bit of drugs going around at the time, too. So I remember, I think, mixing the record. I just says, look, it's best if I do it on my own, you know, sort of thing. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I mean, great, uh, you know, a fearless, a fearless dude, that's for sure. Yes, um, absolutely. And was part of something brilliant, you know, and obviously the brainchild of Tony James, um, the Zig Zig Sputnik thing. So uh, it was kind of cool. Yeah, yeah I, I mean, apart from the mixing, I, I loved his company and I thought he was outrageous and fun. Yes. So and when I, did you... When did you sort of relocate to LA? Did was that much later? Or was that in the O years? No, it was it was in the ninety late nineties. Uh, uh, I'd been many times, and I thought I thought a move would be good. And I kind of I, I I always wanted to be an actor because I act now also, and I, I've done some indie stuff and that. But I was too I was too shy certainly in Withenshaw to say I wanted to be an actor because I was obsessed with Al Pacino. I saw Panic in Needle Park uh, and I thought, fuck, that's amazing. So, you know, in Withenshaw, if you would have said at that time, you know, I want to be an actor, they'd be like, fucking actor, why don't you be a drug dealer like everyone else, you know? <laughs> so I was, I was always very insecure about that. And then Keith Allen, who, who was part of the comic strip uh, at the time, I met Keith in the limelight VIP area in london and he was shooting a movie with a short movie with amanda donahue and bob peck in jurassic park and i says I, you know i really and i was like speeding i says I, you know i can do this i want to be an actor and he says audition now so i auditioned in the club and he gave me two lines to say uh two days later and i'd been up all night speeding uh so nervous nervous as hell did the lines like they were shot out of a Gatling gun and they eventually calmed down. And, but, but it told me something that I felt comfortable with a, with a big camera here. So my, my wife, uh, is Irish and she's an actor. Um, and so we were dating at the time and I just says, you know what, why don't we just move to LA and we'll give it, give it a crack. So it was nineties, late nineties. Right. When we moved. Yeah. That that's one hell of an adventure, isn't it? Yeah, it was. Yeah, we arrived with two suitcases, a small amount of money, one clock radio, and some clothes. Blimey, that was that was that, that. You know, it's a bit like one of those Tony Robbins, you know, events where he says, "Burn your bridges. Make sure you can't go back. You burnt your yeah. bridges, so you we went for it." We couldn't go back. But listen, man, I I I. Uh, it took a while. I got here 
And then within two months, I had a manager. And then within four months, I did a play here called The Indian Wants the Bronx, which was written by Israel Horovitz, whose son was a Beastie Boy, one of the Beastie Boys. And Pacino had made the play famous in the 60s. So I did that here. And then I got an audition for a movie of the week, playing a New York gun dealer. And I did that, put the accent on everything. And then nothing, nothing for about a year. I was like, what, what the fuck's happened? So then I started to write, you know, uh, write screenplays. And I'd never, I'd never trained. I'm going back to the instincts again. Mm. But so, you know, I'd written these screenplays and, and, in your mind, you're like, you know, yeah, we can raise $2 million. And it never happened. So that was another, before you blink, it's another three years that has gone by. Um, and I, I'd done some guitar work in between. I did Michael Aston's solo album uh, from Gene Lewis Jezebel. I produced that and wrote the whole album with him. Oh, fantastic. Did an album with Andy Sex Gang um, out here, which I produced and co-producer and co-wrote with him. So there was little things coming through. And then I finally says, I met this, this really great writer and director. And I said, we should write something and shoot it like we're making a punk rock album. Stop chasing the, the big money. Anyway, we did that. And I got all my friends to be in it, which were big, big name actors. Um, that was my first one. I put myself in it as a lead actor. We co-wrote it. He directed it and it put us on the map and it got in the Cannes Film Festival um, and then got picked up by Lionsgate. Uh, and so that that put us on the path of be, be, being able to make low budget independent. And I've done three to date, which have all done very well. Fantastic. That's such good news. So... So the, the move to America was was that. And, and so music was, it was, it would come and go. And I wasn't as mad into it. I, you know, I kind of fell out of love with it a little bit. Um, and, you know, there was one day I thought, you know what? I'm going to pick the guitar up again. And that's what I did. So it was, you know. And then. So now, you know, it's, uh, I, I can do both if I'm lucky enough to get a job going that way I will if I'm lucky enough to do music this way I go that way too so so was the slaughter and the dogs beware of was that the first album you did kind of reforming the band yeah beware of yeah 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 and what I want to do with that record is is uh we rented a house in Manchester because I thought it was important because the singer lived in Leon I lived here in the states uh, and so we, I thought it'd be good for us to write and try and recapture what we had as kids. And so we rented a house in Manchester and, and, and wrote the songs in the house. Uh, and so that was the first, yeah, the first uh, time I've actually been in the studio. That was the first album, yeah. Blimey. So is the fact, is the band now just kind of something that's sitting on the, the back boiler, so to speak, and it just appears do you do some concerts you do a few albums yeah per periodically we'll do festivals but what happened i'll try and give you the condensed version i don't really want to uh, bore you but i went out and played with the heartbreakers with Walt walter the lamf band yes and i got a call from you know walter 
and and, he, and and I'd known him because Slaughter the Dogs supported the Heartbreakers, and I got to know Johnny back in the day. You know, in fact, Johnny would say he took a shine to me, and he'd go, and I had really bad equipment. He'd go, let the little guy use my amp, right? And so in the end, I said, Johnny, we're the same fucking size. We're both little Italians, you know. Um, so many years later, I get a call, you know, from Walter, and he's like, look, we are you interested in doing this? It's the LMF band and, you know, you would sing Johnny's parts. And I was like, yeah, fucking honored, man. So we did three years of that. But when it happened, Slaughter wasn't doing anything. So I called the singer up and I says, I'm, I'm going to go and do some stuff with the LMF band. And we're, you know, we're going to book some shows and do some stuff in Japan. And I'm going to use the, uh, the Slaughter rhythm player because they, they, these were American guys. Yes. Um, and I don't think he took kindly to that because he was a—he's a very insecure, jealous man. So, oh, here's my wife just coming. Hello. This is David. Hello. I'm doing. Hello. Yeah. And your and your and your dog name? Not your name. Hello, a little sweater for. Uh... Oh, look at that. <laughs> yes. Well, you you would be struggling in the UK. Oh, how sweet. Well, he's tiny and he's shivering in the LA weather, so I just oh, got him a little sweater. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice nice color there you go you. nice to uh, meet you nice to meet you yes absolutely so yeah so uh, so what happened i told barrett and what he did then he trademarked the name behind my back um and then tried to sue any promoter on the lamf tour because on the poster it says walter Lowe's lamf featuring mick rossi from slaunt the docks which is nonsense. You can't sue for that. But what they did, they just caused havoc and scared promoters. Um, and unfortunately, that's the way he chose to go. And so he's uh, he's now has a Mickey Mouse band going out as Slaunt the Dogs. And and then if I want to go out and play with the original lineup, I will. And it's 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 unfortunate that he he found he had to do that out of insecurity. Limey, that is so weird. That is. But it was interesting because you 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 said you worked with one of the members of Gene Loves Jezebel, and um, I bizarrely done an interview with both of those brothers. I didn't know the history until till I did the interviews, and then I went, "Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it?" My God, you know, yeah, it's it's uh, yeah, it's the same thing. I mean, you know, my experience working with Michael was great in the studio, but there was some there was some things that didn't fit well with me after the fact. That's all I'll say. Yeah, I like Jay and James Stevenson. They're good guys, you know, and I like Jay a lot. So, so I know that is so tricky. So then, obviously, that's not going well. But then, during lockdown, was this when you decided to get back in the studio and record as a solo artist? Yeah, during lockdown, what had happened is 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 um, there's a promo promoter and friend in Manchester called Moz Murray, and the second Slot the Dogs album bite back Barrett had ran off um, and we were contracted to do an album. Um, and so we got in Ed Garrity, who was in Ed Banger and the Nosebleeds. So, and that's the one that, that uh, uh, Dale produced from Mott the Hoople. And so with Slaunt the Dogs, Barrett would never sing the, those songs because he was too insecure. He would never sing the second album and people would ask for the songs all the time. So, Pre-lockdown, Moss, a Manchester friend and legend, he says, Mick, I'll promote the gig. Do you fancy doing the, the Bite Back album in its entirety? 
with the original members. I said, it's a wonderful idea. Let's do it, you know. So we had it all set to go. And then COVID, it sold out very quickly. And then COVID hit. And then we did another, we posted another date. And then COVID hit again. And so Moss says to me, he says, look, Mick, would you, would you record a, a few songs on acoustic? I can post them on the websites or whatever it is uh, as a thank you for the, for the punters who, who hadn't asked for refunds. So I went down into the basement of my garage here and um, sang a couple of songs. Moz Pies did a little message. Uh, the response for it was wonderful. They were like, oh, man, you know, acoustic songs, they're great. You should do more of these. And that's when um, I thought, yeah, you know what? I got all these tunes and I booked some studio time here. And I predominantly wanted it just to be an acoustic album. But it kind of outgrew me very quickly and I couldn't resist. And I brought cello players in and strings and piano players and, you know, and uh, so that's how that album, All the Saints and All the Souls, that's how that album came about. Um, yes. So Singing um, with Angels, one of the standout tracks on it. Is this your is this your song to Bowie? My love letter to Bowie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when when Mick died, I, I was fucking devastated and i knew he was sick because i'd seen him I'd seen him about a year before in dublin he was finishing the album and joe joe elliott was instrumental in 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 getting mick over the finish line with that album so that really took a chunk out of me and so i just didn't expect bowie to pass you know who would have put money on on iggy pop being the last man standing you know, out of Lou, Dave, Iggy, you know, because they, they were the kind of three that would hang out together. So when Bowie died, I, I, I was just numb because he was such an important part of my life and, and shaped me through his music um, along with Mick. And I, I didn't know how to grieve. And, and I remember just going to the bedroom and taking a guitar and it wrote itself in about literally about 15 minutes. So it is, it's my love letter to, to him, 100%. Yes. And um, as we mentioned at the beginning, you, you, you sort of channel the spirit of Paul McCartney. Why, why that particular track from Band on the Run? Well, I think, first of all, I think it was a, a challenge for me to, to take that song. I was listening to it on the radio in the car. And as I said, it's a very bombastic song. It's coming at you, bam, 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 bam. And there's so much, the kitchen sink is in that song. And I remember just, just the song finished. And I can't remember, I was somewhere on sunset here. And um, I just thought, man, oh man, you know, that's a, that's a, and then I came home and then played the song. I YouTubed the song and played it again and again and again. And I just thought, you know, maybe, a ballad would be a very brave thing to do because I, I, I look the easiest thing for me to have done on 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 Saints would to was to cover Sorrow Rebel Rebel because that's in my DNA that was glam you know yes or Sweet Jane or Vicious or one of those and I I wanted to do something that people wouldn't expect for me to do. Um, I think that's why I did it, and it was a challenge. Yeah, 
I've always I've always loved the lyrics. I thought they were just so sort of I was very young when I heard that album and you know, I just always found it such an interesting narrative. Well, well, it's about his horse. I didn't know that. Jet was his horse. You know, with the wind in your head of a thousand laces, climb on the back and we'll go for a ride in the sky. It's about it's about his horse. And I'm like, holy shit. Fantastic. Well, then Remake, Remodel, the Roxy Music Song was about a car. So there you go, you know. There you go. So then lockdown, you know, it's a bit strange. When when that came out, did you say were you on sort of a roll at this stage and thought this is it? I'm gonna I'm gonna keep this going. I've always been a very prolific writer. Um, with slaughter, there was certain boundaries that I I had to stay in because I could have never released Jet on a Slaughter Dogs album um, because. There's a certain, as I say, certain boundaries. And I think it's wrong that, that, you know, and it's down to myself for allowing that to happen. Um, so I've always been a very prolific songwriter. But, you know, the last Slaughter album we did was Vicious, so it had to be of, of a certain style, if you like. Um, so I had these songs from the Duelist days. And, and even when I was working with, with all those other bands, I was constantly writing. So... What lockdown did, it, it, it kind of allowed me to open up that box and look inside and go, oh, man, yeah, you know, that's that. And then I, I, I had like four or five of Saints songs written. They were older songs. And then I just started writing like a, like a bastard. And I haven't stopped since. Because the production... It sounds so good on the album. It really has a great vibe. Where did you, where was it recorded? Um, the, I've, I've worked at the same studio for the last 20 years here in LA. It's a studio called Winslow Court Studio. It's the oldest stand-in studio in Los Angeles. It used to be a Foley studio for RCA back in the day. Then Liberace bought it. Liberace had it. Um, and then after that, the Doors had it. Um, and it, it's it's now owned and run by a, a brilliant guy called Craig Parker Adams, who's a Grammy-nominated producer in his own right. Uh, and he engineers all my records. And we have a great shorthand because we've done so many records together. Right. Um, and so I knew it needed to be of a, the sonics of the record needed to be of a certain plushness um certainly songs like midnight dream where i got in uh, this guy called zach ray who's played with leonard cohen aerosmith uh it goes on and on he's he's brilliant so and, and i'm a sucker for strings you know i mean anything ennio morricone does is i'm, I'm just flawed uh and so the I, you know merging the strings with piano and and acoustics uh if you get it right, it, it, you know, it, it can have legs. Yes. So, because you probably have come across this as well, but, you know, artists, which I still think is brilliant, are making music. Sometimes their latest albums lyrically are a bit lumpy. They're, they're, they're sort of struggling what to sing about. It's a little that, bit cliche. They start talking about climate change. It's like a bit too, you know, I don't know. You know, sometimes I've heard, I, I, I recently heard the latest Deep Purple album and, 
Ian Gillen had been talking about it. When I heard it, I thought, oh, this this doesn't feel young and no. fresh. Whereas your album still has a kind of fluidity, which is quite nice. And actually, the other person who I adored was obviously Morrissey and the Smiths. When I hear his lyrics now, it's like, they're not quite the same. There's a, I don't know, there is an essence, isn't there, with an artist that you think something isn't quite lining up anymore. But this sound, this sound and this lyric does sound good. You know, sonically, it's still got it. Thank you. Well, also, it's it's with Slaughter. I was the music writer and melody man. I didn't write the lyrics, and it was always like, well, you're the singer, you write, because you're kids, you know, you're the singer, you write the lyrics, I'll write the, the music, you know? Um, and so as soon as I stopped with Slaughter and I stepped off that that train and and those 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 boundaries were lifted, um, I felt that, that lyrically, it was very clear what I wanted to sing about and talk about and and write about. So it was almost it was like being like young again for me. It was like fresh and like because I'd never done the lyrics. I'd written some choruses with Slaughter, um, but uh, so this this was um, it just felt fresh again. And I felt very uh, full of full of spirit. Full of great rock and roll spirit in the studio. And yes. I didn't quite I was doing. And I didn't like, I, you know, I never write lyrics and analyze them. I, I write what comes out organically. I mean, I'll have an idea of what I'm going to write about. Um, and, you know, it, it falls how it's going to fall. So that particular record, I, I think it resonates because there's there's a there's such a joy. E- even though the record is, is pretty, you know, it's pretty downbeat at times, but um, I had a blast writing and recording it, and I think I think it 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 was it was captured, you know. I think audiences are smart these days, you know, and they can spot when you're faking it. They really can, and I think if you come from a place of truth, true honesty, people will find it and they'll pick up on that. And that goes for live too. You know, I've never ever phoned a live show in my life. You know, I, I give it everything all the time. Certainly in the studio doing saints, I, I felt there was something happening and I just got very lucky with the musicians that says they, they wanted to play with me on it. And, uh, and Craig, Craig and I were so in sync on that record. So it's great. And the other thing you mentioned a bit earlier was, I suppose that, I think I'll probably add a word, there was like youthfulness, there's the arrogance and there's the sort of confidence with the, you know, when you're a bit younger, I suppose there's a sort of a, an energetic kind of naivety, but arrogance as well, which is kind of perfect. And I think as as one gets older, there is doubt. And I think sometimes I can hear people writing songs later on and it's like, oh God, they're not quite sure what to focus on and where to go and you know, their emotions are there, but their life experience has changed. So when you heard David Bowie's last album, Black Star, you're thinking, wow, that's pretty, that is pretty amazing. He's really tapped straight in there. So did you have a similar feeling when you were writing this album that you were sort of very present and in the moment? Yeah, very much so. Very much so. Uh, And I was surprised that because there's a song called Hang On on the album, and that, that is 15 years old. And I'm surprised how that song just fit with the new stuff too. 
and it was an interesting uh, discovery. It really was, you know, because I, I think if you get a song right, it's timeless and ageless. It 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 will affect people the same way as it did day one. It will stand up. It will have legs. You you can certainly for me you can see what what are trends of the moment and they come and go. But I, 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 if you get a song right and it and it has pure spirit and it's an organic experience, you capture something magical. And that stays forever. So yes. with, uh, I was very present, extremely present. I had a really clear idea what I wanted. You know, I would come home from the studio and I would listen to the tracks and then I would go, okay, I'm, I'm going to put cellos here and I'm, I, the, my counter melodies are going to go here and the girls are going to sing this. So it, I was in it right from, from the, the first strum. And how long were you in the studio for? Just under a month, on and off. The track lays, I track laid very quickly in about four days, but then I, I had to wait for availability on certain people, you know? Um, so, and because I, I'm, I'm a friend of Craig's who owns the studio, that includes mixing it too. We took our time on the mixing and he wasn't going way, way back to what we spoke about earlier. He wasn't like that, that guy in, in Manchester when we did our first demos. Who took the hundred quid and says, "Okay, your hour's up. You've got to leave now." Yes. Then the songs were finished or not. Craig, you know, is the opposite to that. So yeah, just under a month, it was all done and dusted and mastered, and we mastered it here too. So. You know. And did you? And have you played it live? The the new material. Are you talking about the Gun Street stuff now, or the acoustic one? Or all the the Gun Street. Yeah, yeah, we've. Um, we we did Rebellion Festival last year. We headlined the Opera House, and the year before was Gun Street's debut uh, at Rebellion Festival. Because they're really really good people, and um, Darren and Jenny, the founders of the festival, they don't take corporate sponsorship. They still run it like a mom and pop thing. It's wonderful. So anything that I did, they said Mickey always got a home here. You know so. I thought it'd be a great way to uh, to debut the uh, the album. Yes. So it was a little little bit of a Saints in there because I did the acoustic stage and then we did the electric thing. I did a couple of secret warm up gigs here in LA just to try it out, and uh, yeah, just off to the races. Absolutely. And I've recording the new Gun. I've just finished writing the new Gun Street album. Um, but about three weeks ago, I'm going to record that in February, and it's called Rock and Roll Soul. Um, so yeah, we're, we're, you know, I'm still rolling has, with it. Has the experience with Slaughter has that sort of lifted a massive weight off your shoulders that you feel a bit like actually I'm quite relieved now that that chapter's a little bit. One hundred percent. I mean, I look back on it now, and I look. It, it, it's it's. It's, I either chose not to see the behavior and the insecurity and the jealousy, or I just wasn't aware of it because we didn't play a lot with Slaughter. I was very selective. You know, we would never, we, we would never be the last, the last uh, uh, guy at the party, so to speak. So I would say no to a lot of shows. 
and that's why I think it was it was nice and it was eventful when we did play. But uh, when he did that, then it, you kind of you you do a rewind and you go, well, that was a sign, and that so you see all these these moves and and boundaries that that, that I felt was on me. So um, yeah, man, I felt liberated, one hundred percent, and. It, it, it was so rewarding because the reviews for All the Saints, it, it was a brave thing because people know me as this rock and roll guitarist, you know, and I was in this band and we did these many albums and I played with this person and that person. But to come out and do an acoustic album where there's very little guitar soloing, um, I, I was just so honored and thrilled that the reviews for it were off the fucking charts. I mean worldwide um and so that just really bolstered my belief and, and my belief in my instinct even more yeah so yeah massively uh uh relieved and and deep, deep. it's it's the the opening track on the new album is called the chains chains on me and you know obviously it's a metaphor but that's how i feel chains are broken now so it's great yes well it's interesting because quite a different artist but i know i heard taylor swift did an acoustic album during lockdown with a few you know uh one particular guy and actually i quite like it i think a lot of people had that opportunity to do something really different during the lockdown period and just sort of sat around in a with a piano and acoustic guitar and think well this could be the the future so let's just get on and use our time wisely and um yeah it's been quite interesting really certain times because you know we all thought you know ah three months you know no one thought three years and so everyone was available so it was wonderful yeah so i called and said i want to do this record i said i've got a very limited budget and he's like let's do it you know so it's and and i applaud you know anybody who who went in and and did it and, and channeled that uh you know I don't know if it's boredom or downtime or uncertainty and channeled into, into doing something productive. Yes. So, yeah. And you, mentioned, and you mentioned a bit earlier the Las Vegas kind of uh, punk museum. Have you been there and had a look or have you just donated some stuff? No, I, w- I went down there um, last week. They asked me when it opened. Billy Joe uh, Armstrong, Green Day Billy, he put, a, I think, a million bucks in and... Uh, Fat Mike is a bass player in a band called No FX. Yeah, he put him. Uh, and so they asked me a long time ago, about a year ago, did I have anything? And I was like, oh yeah, you know, but I don't keep anything. I give most of it away. So when I was home last for the Gun Street show, I found the very first acoustic that my mum bought me for six pounds, which is twelve dollars. You know. And that's what I learned to play on. I wrote some of dog style on that. And so then I brought that back and, and then I, I called them and I said, look, I got this uh, guitar and some albums and some picks and that sort of thing. And they said, would you, would you bring it up? And I got some friends in Vegas, you know, the, the, the director of played my movie and the director of my um, videos for Saints. He lives in Vegas. So I took it down and um, they gave me the tour and it's remarkable. It's huge. 
and they've got Joe Strummer's telly in there, Johnny's uh, uh, Les Paul Jr., Johnny Thunders, uh, Gen X stuff, um, Lemmy's stuff, as well as a ton of American bands. So I, I, I was really, really honored, man. I was asked. And they're going to put it behind a glass case and, you know, do all that shit. So, yes. Yeah. No, I, I'm, I've been very impressed. And have, the, have you ever played at their punk bowling weekend? No, we we were meant to with Slaughter a few years ago, but then he went and did what he did, the Barrett thing with the trademark thing. And so that kind of fell through. But I may play it with Gun Street. I may do. Got to be done, hasn't it? It's got to be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And is it the case that you might play some of your, some Slaughter tracks or will you just completely leave that to one side? No, no, I'm... Because I'm I'm very conscious of where I came from and what people like from me in that period. So uh, the set the set I, I put in two Slaughter the Dog songs. I put in Boston Babies and Situations. Uh, I really like playing the songs. Um, I'm very comfortable singing the songs, and I put my approach on it as a singer uh so i do a couple of slaughter songs and then i also do because i did the lamf band for like three years i do um uh, born to lose as little homage to walter nice so but a nice it's a nice balanced set uh so i've got you know obviously the gun street stuff and also i i think you know when we did rebellion and I went on stage. The first thing I said was, apart from thanking them for, for coming, is I said, look, I'm going to play songs tonight that you don't know. You know, these are new songs. And I hope you're cool with that. Um, because it's always hard. You're at those festivals, that, you know, that you're going to hit them with new songs. And uh, so I asked them, was it cool before I did it? And they were like, yeah, you know. And so the, the balance of then Slaughter songs, uh, I think I did Waiting for the Man too as well as a Heartbreakers song or two. It was a really nice, well-balanced set. So, Yes. Yeah. God, that's, it sounds brilliant. It sounds like everything's going remarkably well. I hope. I hope. I, you know, the hardest thing now, because it's a changing game, it's, it's breathing life into your material uh, and keeping it alive. Um, because it's such a fast-moving world we live in. The internet is a blessing and, and a curse. It really is. So, you know, you can go by so quickly. And so the hardest thing as an artist, certainly for me, is to is keep focus. No, come back here. We're not done with this yet. Come back here. And that's, you know, keep keeping your work alive and, 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 and breathing fresh life into it. Um, so, but I've been very fortunate and I'm very, very blessed that I, I got to do these records and, and with a little label in the UK called Secret Records. And they're, they're one of the last standing indie record labels. But they have, you know, they've got Ian Hunter and Echo and the Bunny Man, so I'm, I'm, I'm in good company. Yes. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's good, man. I'm, I'm in a good place musically, you know. That is such a good one. Well, look, I've loved the new album and um, I'm definitely, it's good. I love the acoustic. I've always been a soft spot for acoustic music from those early days anyway. So, um yeah, like you said, there's nothing like something quite real and raw and and honest, and um, it always it does resonate on one's 
deep, deep sort of soul, really. So um, I love the music. I just think that it sounds so brilliant. So um, I really hope the second, the third album comes out so well. Yeah, well, it's got, you know, I'm really happy with the songs. It's got a, a good balance, um, a couple of acoustic ones in there, because I feel now I, I can... I, I can put what I want. If I want to use trumpets, I can use trumpets, you know. If I want yes. to use someone playing a glockenspiel, I can. So, But no, I'm very happy with the record. I think it's a good balance of songs. Um, and hopefully it, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a nice step up from the Gun Street album. Yeah, well, it's good. Well, look, thank you ever so much for giving me the time for this. And if you want, I can always send you a link and you can always put it on your social media platform oh. site. Because I'm not, I don't have a Facebook page or any of that stuff. I don't have Instagram. But Mark, Mark, our drummer, he runs the Instagram stuff. So yeah, please let us know when this, when it's going to go. Oh out. yes, I will. Well, I'll send you the link, and then you can send it to Mark. Mark. We'll Mark. we'll uh, we'll put it on. Um, you know, we'll put it on and get it get it on the sites. Yeah, get it on. And is the album available on Bandcamp and the usual places? I know I was listening to it on Spotify uh, this what, week. The new one. Oh, the new one's not recorded yet. So. Oh no, no, this the the one that we've, I've just been playing. Yes. Uh, yeah, it's available. It's on vinyl. It's on CD. It's on Spotify. All that stuff. The whole business. Brilliant. Yeah. Well, look. The whole streaming thing, you know. It's there. It's just there. Okay, yeah, I've been just listening to it on, on Spotify, really. Anyway, look, I'll have a lovely day, and thank you again for your time. Oh, my pleasure, man. Thank you very much. And uh, yes. got their technical stuff. So keep in contact. And, I will. Um, I'll, uh, when the new album's recorded, I'll send you a link to it. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you ever so much. I really appreciate that. And um, right. yes, take care. And uh, I love your Rono stories. Ready to listen. I'll get Mark to put it. And I'll get Moz, who does the Facebook stuff. I'll get him to put a link on that too. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks ever so much. Take care. Take Cheers. Bye-bye. And that Bye. was me. That was me in conversation with Mick Rossi from, well, from his new solo career actually but one time member of Slaughter and the Dogs and uh, like I said the new album is titled Gun Street which is available from all good record shops and also downloads I'm sure I'll give you a link in the notes below this has been the C86 show David East so if you want to contact me you can on Facebook Twitter Instagram just do C86 show all these interviews have been archived aren't you lucky you can find those on Spotify iTunes Podbeam it's true have a great week stay safe